0: You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt.
1: Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host, and today our guest is Eddie Reynolds, who is founder and CEO of Union Square Consulting. We're going to talk to him a little bit about sales strategy, Salesforce. Uh, development, Salesforce management, and just generally how companies can get better about taking the leads they have, closing leads, using technology, using strategy. So Eddie, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Bruce. So uh, let's start. I always like to have guests start a little bit about their background before we kind of dig into Union Square and what you're doing there. How did you get into this? What was your professional background? Tell us a little bit of the story.
0: Yeah. So my background is probably not the typical background you would find with somebody running a technical in banking and then worked in private equity. But I spent my career in client facing roles. And so it was really important for me to think about how am I building relationships with the people I'm working with and how am I managing that information so that I can be the best that I can be. And along the way, I discovered Salesforce started drinking the Kool-Aid, ended sure. up working at the company for 3 years. And then that's yeah. the beginning of the story. I guess the end of it is that I spent a lot of time at Salesforce working with companies across many different industries and sending those clients to various companies that would help implement Salesforce once they bought, once they bought Salesforce. Yeah. And I saw a lot of things that worked and a lot of things that didn't. And I left Salesforce to
1: start this company and wanted to take a little bit of a different approach to the market. Got it. So, and I and, and this is great because I you know I've heard all the stories about implementing Salesforce, the the great ones, the not so great ones. Uh, you know, you've been there on the Salesforce side and really sort of seen you know companies that have adopted technology and adopted the whole kind of Salesforce strategy. What are some of the things that you kind of noticed or? Or takeaways that that you had seeing lots of different companies implement Salesforce, what generally did you see that kind of worked or didn't work in terms of the approaches, the strategies, or the implementation?
0: Well, I think the big thing that you know stuck out for me is you know, there were certainly implementation partners that were good and ones that weren't. But regardless of the implementation partner, I think the success or failure hinged so much upon the buy-in from the executive leadership team that we saw at the companies that that I worked with. Yeah. If they wanted to take a strategic approach to growing their business and think about how are we maximizing the people, the processes, the technology in our company to get to where we want to be next year, then naturally, they usually were able to figure out how to implement Salesforce and make it a success. But so often, we would see clients come in and say, look, we either want to delegate this so far down the chain that it's being built in a way that doesn't actually help us get to where we ultimately want to go. Mm -hmm. Or we're not even interested in doing that. And we really just want to use Salesforce as a Rolodex and nothing more. Yeah. Neither of those things really results in a company scaling and seeing significant improvement in their ability to build relationships with people and bring in more business.
1: Yeah. And I think that, that kind of drives with most of what I've seen too, is like, you know, sa- buying Salesforce is not a strategy. <laughs> so, Salesforce is a tool that helps you, you know, make your strategy more implementable or kind of more efficient and helps you accelerate the process, but it in and itself is not a strategy and, and, You know, certainly the Rolodex thing I've seen happen lots and lots of times, like people just dump all their contacts in there, but they don't actually do anything with it in terms of developing a sales process or a sales funnel. So in terms of the work you're doing now with Union Square, so you've now shifted from kind of the the software license sales side of things into the actual implementation side of things. Who's a typical kind of client for you and what's a typical project look like? Yeah,
0: absolutely. So, you know, in having started this company just a couple of years ago, we've worked with companies across various industries and we're starting to narrow our focus and get really good at a couple of key industries. But we still do work with companies in very different spaces. Our focus tends to be on companies that want to optimize sales and marketing. Now, that may sound straightforward if you don't know a lot about Salesforce, but where we don't tend to do a ton of work is on customer service teams, on you know internet of things, connecting physical devices. There's lots of things that Salesforce does that isn't really in our wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. Where we tend to specialize is working with salespeople and marketers and helping them figure out how they can grow the business. And we tend to lean more towards working with uh, salespeople and marketers that have a product or service that is relatively complex and expensive. And I'd be happy to go into the differences that we see between those types of companies and ones that are selling much less expensive products, but they're pretty significant. Yeah. And it really changes the way that they approach their entire sales and marketing strategy.
1: And what's an example of like a, a complex, expensive kind of product or service that you're selling versus one that's not? I mean, just gonna give a, give us a practical Case on that?
0: Well, an extreme example would be, you know, a group of people that would not call themselves salespeople. You would have investment bankers or wealth managers, right? If you start talking to them about how they're going to optimize their conversion rate from leads to opportunities, you're going to lose them really quickly. (laughs) Their focus is on building relationships and rightfully so, because they're working with people that have the ability to either invest money or spend money or buy things or do deals that can be in the millions, tens of millions, hundreds. Hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. Yeah. And those kind of things don't get done if A, you don't have a rock solid foundation of a relationship that's built on trust. And that's trust that you're going to get the job done. And it's also trust that you know what you're doing. And so for a lot of people, they struggle to understand how can technology help in that equation. And to some extent, it can't. You cannot go and take anyone off the street and plug them into that job and expect them to be successful even with the best technology in the world. But what you can do is you can empower those people to have better information and faster access to it so that when they walk into a meeting, they're more empowered to make that meeting more impactful.
1: Yeah. And I like that because I, you know, certainly for the listeners to this podcast, you know, we're looking at services, you know, that that's the hard part. I mean, it's it's typically not super transactional. You know, we don't have, you know, a widget. We don't have a, a thing that we're actually selling that we're handing off that has the value. It is it's about the relationship and it's about the interaction between people that is the delivery of value. And, and it makes it very ephemeral and it makes it difficult to kind of establish that trust and actually have that transaction happen, that sales process happen. And so I think what you're talking about is, is hugely important for this audience. Because I think it's it's how do you establish that trust? How do you establish that relationship so you can actually then sell in a relationship basis? So talk to me a little bit about the process because if you know a, a product, if I'm buying a TV, I walk into a store, I can kind of look at its features, I can compare it to other TVs, I kind of know what price points, I can optimize that. Like if I'm you know how, how do I compare you know these kind of intangible kind of things? And how does the sales process, when you look strategically at a sales process, how how do you enable or how do you help a prospect um, through that process of selecting and buying?
0: Well, and I think that that's really like crux of what we see every day. Like we work with so many people in these industries where they are providing a really high touch service to their clients. And they themselves have the experience of all of these consumer applications. They're getting emails every day. They have apps on their iPhone. They understand this automated process that's used in business to consumer types of companies. Mm -hmm. And they see how effective some company like Uber is. And I think a lot of them are thinking like, how can we do this in our business? But can we even do anything like this? Because it's so radically different and not applicable. But I think that if you really break down that process, when you're talking about anything, that's going to be extremely high touch, before you can have a client, you first have to... initiate and build a relationship. Now, if you don't even know who that person is, you're not going to get very far. Most people that are working in in high-touch industries know a lot of people out in the market. But how long does it take you to access that information? So we see a lot of our customers that are doing something that's no more complicated than saying, look, there are many, many databases of information about our specific industry. How do we give our people faster access to it? How do we integrate that data into a tool like Salesforce? And it doesn't have to be Salesforce. Obviously, that's what we do. And I'm a big fan of it. But that's not what I'm here to talk about today. It's really about giving your people better and faster access to information so they can say, look, even if... I' I am not going to go bang out a bunch of cold calls today or slam a thousand mass you know, cookie cutter emails. Maybe I want to invite somebody to lunch. How much time does it take me to go and find the person that I want to talk to at the company I want to talk to, their name and phone number? That is building a Rolodex. Yeah. But from there, once I have a conversation with somebody, how do I make that the most impactful conversation I possibly can have? And I think that this comes down to two things. One, how much access, how easy is my access to market information. Mm -hmm. What's going on that is pertinent and relevant to that particular individual in that company. And how much time does it take me to go dig up that information? Some of that information is out there in these external data sources. And some of it is inside of the the company inside of your company itself. There are so many different people in your company that may have interacted with any individual at your target company in the past. And where is that information being held? If it's sitting in somebody's desk on a yellow notepad, that doesn't help
1: you out mm-hmm. very much. Yeah. Again, and I like this idea that it, you know, that the strategy here is not to replace the salesperson. It's not to say, okay, well, we can we can create a system that does the selling. It's how do we make sort of superpower enabled salespeople? You know, so that we give them tools, information you know, at their fingertips so that they can be more effective in the job that they're doing in terms of the interaction, in terms of whether it's building the relationship, whether it's helping consult the prospect on the purchase process. Can you give me a good, good example? Because I think conceptually it, it makes a lot of sense. Can you give me an example of like how how this applies? Like is there like a situation you can kind of describe and how, you know, a good sales support system, a sales system like this would change the conversation from, you know, someone either going to lunch or having a phone call, sort of the old way, and then a a new way that is you know much more enhanced through the technology that we're talking about
0: yeah, absolutely. And I'll give it to you from two perspectives. So let's look at this from the perspective of the person that's trying to build relationships and get deals done. And yeah. let's also look at it from the perspective of the person actually running the company or one of the senior leaders, right? Yeah. And so let's say, for example, that you're in a scenario where you get referrals from various sources. Lots of businesses in lots of different industries work really hard to build relationships with other individuals and organizations that then refer business to them. And it's really easy to anecdotally say, wow, you know, like Bruce sends me so many referrals. I really need to double down. I need to take him out to dinner again. But without the ability to track that information, especially across the entire company, how effective and how valuable is that relationship? If we actually take a look at the data and we find out that, wow, Bruce is sending us a lot of referrals, but these referrals tend to take us a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, our win rate is very low on them. It turns out that once we actually win those clients over, they tend to be very unhappy, very difficult, very mm-hmm. costly to serve. Whereas this other individual or this other organization is sending us referrals that are a lot more profitable. Maybe we need to double down our efforts in building that relationship. And move away from the one yeah. that actually is not as beneficial for us. And you can think about that from the perspective of the like an individual contributor in an organization. Mm-hmm. And you can also think about that from the perspective of the leader of the entire company. How do we look at what we're doing across the entire company and how do we optimize that?
1: Yeah. Well, and I like the separation you just gave, which I think, you know, people may or may not sort of be thinking about when they're thinking about sales, which is the the actual sort of sales process and the sales people and how do I, you know make sure that they're going to be successful. And then this sales management, which is you know kind of one level up, how do I manage a sales organization, a sales team? And that kind of data is going to be hugely important to both, but I can see it being applied in lots of different ways. And the other one I like is it, you know, the idea that, you know, a real professional salesperson is focused on selling, they don't necessarily have all the sort of anecdotal information that they're going to need to be able to make these judgment calls about, yes, which referral source or which prospects are going to play best. Having the tools and having the information that actually shows them, hey, look, this is what we look at the last six months of leads and how they converted into the clients. And if those clients were successful, profitable, easy to deal with, did they refer other customers or not being able to kind of qualify and give that information so the sales salesperson can make better decisions on how do I spend my time and how do I spend my effort on developing more of those? Do I want more of those or not? Like That might not be a great lead source. It may look great in the beginning, but in terms of the business value, it may not be there once we get into delivery. Whereas another lead source that may look more difficult for for a salesperson up front could actually be much more value for the organization. So, which could be a really good investment of time. Not having the data means you can't make those kind of decisions. So I think that's what you're getting at.
0: No, and I think that that's a really big thing. I will say that, you know, when we work with Salesforce it's a really delicate balance between trying to serve the needs of the leaders of the organization and serving the needs of the frontline producers. And you have to do both, right? The management of an organization, one of the biggest things that they want is they want real-time visibility into their business. They want analytics and data. They want to understand, are we on track to meet our goals? But that only happens if you get the data into the system from the end users. And those end users are only going to use that system if it provides value to them in their day right now there is a bit of it where you know if you as an executive are not backing the initiative you shouldn't expect people to actually use the tool and for the initiative to be a success but it can't all be stick there needs to be some carrot as well yeah. and so we need to build a system that actually helps people close more deals and what we find is that these end users none of them ever want to put data into the system right yeah. we're all lazy we want we want to get and not to give that's yeah. human nature right But the second that you come to somebody and say, look, I now have really robust information that you can access. You're about to go meet Bob for lunch. Do you want to know the entire 10-year history of Bob with our company? Every deal he's looked at, every deal he's passed on, every deal he's done, whether or not we've run into roadblocks before with him or not, Mm -hmm. of course, you're going to want to access that information. What if we then say, hey, we now have news feeds integrated. We have proprietary industry data that we're paying for that's piped right into the system. And before you go to your meeting... And by the way, this isn't something you have to spend two hours digging up. You can pull out your phone while you're in the taxi headed to the meeting and scroll through and uh, digest all of this information right before you walk in the door. And now how empowered are you to have a more impactful meeting than your competitor?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's the picture you're painting is very appealing, (laughs) but I have, I have this kind of deep rich profile on the person I'm going to meet and the, the company that they represent you know, before I go into these meetings, it's gonna, it's gonna give me a, a much better strategy. It's gonna inform my strategy and the, the, my objectives for the meeting um, much, much better than, you know, walking in cold and, and figure, you know, trying to get the stuff out of them, which I may already know. And the, and the third party information is really interesting. I mean, how often or I guess how much do you focus on? I mean, there's the whole kind of internal company data. My, their uh, deal history, the projects that they've done, they haven't done, uh, things I know internally. This idea of third party external information, you know, data sets, data sources of various types. What, what have, I guess, how often do you see that really being used? How is it being used effectively? Like what kind of tools or what kind of data can people pull into their sales system that's either publicly available or available from third parties.
0: I mean, it's incredibly valuable and we see it incredibly frequently. I don't think this is a secret, at least in a lot of industries. I mean, in my industry, for example, if I were to go and do prospecting, There are data sources out there that will tell me whether a company is using Salesforce or not. When I worked in private equity, we were able to... And when I worked in private equity, my job was to raise capital for the private equity fund. So the private equity fund themselves, or more specifically, the general partner that manages that fund would hire us to then go out and talk to institutional investors like university endowments, like Harvard, Mm -hmm. for example, or pension funds like CalPERS, the California Public Employees Retirement System, to talk to them about these various private equity funds that they might want to invest in. And we could pull up a data source like Prequin, for example, which, by the way, happens to have a native built integration with Salesforce. You wouldn't think private equity guys are using Salesforce, but you'd be surprised. And you're not only able. See the names and phone numbers and email addresses of all the pertinent people at Harvard, but you're also able to see what like their asset allocation is to private equity and hedge funds and various other asset classes, what kind of things they've looked at, what kind of things they haven't, exactly how many assets they have under management, news that's in the press right now, all of this right at the click of a button. Now, if you are going to go and pitch somebody on making a $50 million investment, nobody, whether they're using Salesforce or not, is going to consider going into that meeting not armed with that information. But how much time does it take you to access that information? I'm not trying to teach somebody with 30 years of banking or investing experience, how to be a better banker or investor. I'm simply trying to help them get access to information faster so they can do what they do best, better.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think the uh, you know, if we look at it from a competitive point of view, the company that has that, you know, at its fingertips versus the company that has to you know, dig through files or, you know, spend an hour kind of reading different reports to cobble that together is going to be obviously is going to have a huge advantage.
0: Well, further to that point, like if I could add, we haven't touched on marketing. And I think that's where there's a really
1: exciting opportunity. Separate out sales versus marketing for me, just so that we've, so our, our listeners, so myself and the listeners have a good sense of how do you see the difference between sales and marketing? Ooh, that's a really <laughs> tough question.
0: I actually try to blend them together more okay. than I try to separate them. But okay. I think that your typical person, at least the way I thought of it before I got educated on it, was I'm a salesperson, I'm responsible for sales. And what that means is I pick up the phone, I go to meetings, I, you know, present proposals, et cetera. And marketing is the team responsible for, you know, making sure people know who our company is. Maybe they're responsible for generating leads, but when mm. I worked in private equity, we're not getting, you know, marketing based leads, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe there's a maybe there's some name brand recognition or something like that but i think what we're seeing in our world is there's a real breakdown of those silos yeah. it's no longer this idea that the marketer goes out and and this is what you typically will see the marketer goes out and they spend money on Public relations. They spend money on advertising. They may be generating leads, and then that whatever effort is put forth and whatever money is invested, it gets thrown over the fence to salespeople, and then salespeople are then responsible for managing those relationships. And if you go back to like watching Glenn, Gary, Glenn Ross, your typical salesperson is complaining about how the terrible the leads are, and I want the gold leads, right? Mm-hmm. And this is just a natural tendency for any like sales and marketing organization to have this level of conflict. Marketing is saying, look, we spent so much time and money to develop these for you. The reason these are not turning into revenue is because salespeople aren't doing their job. And salespeople are pointing their finger right back at marketing. And where we're seeing like a lot of companies go, and this isn't really a new thing, this has been happening for a long time, is better integrating the two channels so we can say, look, the difference for me is marketing is responsible for working with people that have not yet or are are not ready to have a serious conversation. Mm-hmm. Sales is responsible for talking to the people that are. Now, people can go in and out of that that description. Somebody can... You know, know of your name in the market and call you. You can meet someone at a conference. Someone can fill out a form on a website to schedule a call, and they can be very interested only to find out that actually, no, now that I've learned more, I'm not yet ready. And what happens with a lot of sales organizations, that person just dies on the vine. I talked mm-hmm. to Bob. He doesn't have budget. He's not ready. Timing's not right. I'll put a tickler in six months to give him a call. And I'm going to completely forget about Bob for the next six months, year, year and a half. And what's going to happen over that course of time between now and that that you know let's say i'm using salesforce and i created a task to remind myself well what happens is your competitors are after bob and trying to win his business and there's a good chance that when he says call me back in 6 months that that was not exactly a scientific <laughs> estimate on when he's going to be ready to have a
1: conversation yeah exactly a yeah, classic case and you call them in 6 months they're just like oh you know we just hired somebody a month ago <laughs>
0: It happens all the time. And so what I think is really cool is you'll see... We we see a lot of organizations using marketing automation, for example. Pardot is a marketing automation tool owned by Salesforce. HubSpot is one that's more widely recognized in the market. And it gives these salespeople an ability. And we even see this like with very high-touch sales where they're saying, Look, let me put this person back into a nurturing campaign where we can share relevant content with them. And then let me measure his, his or her interaction with that content. So if that person is downloading the PDF, going to our website, it might be time for me to pick the phone back up and call Bob back and see if I can get another meeting. If they're ignoring everything that we're sending them, well, then maybe, maybe it really isn't time to talk yeah. to Bob yet.
1: I like that. It's, you know, rather than a kind of uh, client defined touch point or, or scheduling the next touch point based on when the client says call me back. It's more it's based on activity and based on interaction with, you know, content, website, the you know marketing kind of marketing systems or marketing um, content. So let's talk a little bit about when a company needs to start thinking about these things, because, I you know, we've, I'm assuming that there's a certain amount of kind of investment or a certain kind of like work that needs to go in putting the strategy. You know, if I'm a one or two person shop and I'm, you know, kind of we're running our sales in a very kind of intuitive way. You know, we start to grow. Like, how do you kind of qualify or how do you identify prospects or or companies who are to the point where they need to start thinking about this from a strategy and from a system and from a process point of view? And I mean, is this, you know, companies from one or two people can do this stuff, or do you need to be of a certain size or certain complexity before this stuff really starts paying off?
0: It's an interesting question. I mean, we don't work, we have worked with clients with one or two people, but we don't Uh work with a lot of them. And when we do our, Engagement tends to be quite limited, as you might imagine. I would say, you know, it depends. I think on the marketing front, we don't see a lot of extremely small organizations doing a lot. Now you can use a tool like Constant Contact or MailChimp and you can create a newsletter and you can measure the stuff and you can do it pretty quickly inexpensively. And you don't have to pay a company like mine a lot or anything to set this up. I think at the point where you start investing really significant money in your marketing efforts, you're spending money on SEO, you're either in paying somebody to write content, or you're doing it yourself, which represents an equal investment. Now the question is, okay, how do I maximize the ROI on that investment? And also, how do I even maximize the ROI on something if I'm not measuring the ROI in the first place? Yeah, exactly. So I think like when you run across a company and they say, hey, look, like we're only spending $100,000 a year on marketing. Okay, well, that's a lot of money maybe not to you, Mr. CEO of a 10 million dollar company, but what could that marketing ultimately turn into? And, you know, what part of that marketing, you know the proverbial, well, I know that all I know about my marketing is that half of it's working and half of it's not, but I don't know which. <laughs> well, we can fix that. You can yeah. measure from the very initial impression of a campaign all the way through, not just not just generating leads, but how much business is actually being closed. And yeah. depending on how you're leveraging your systems to measure things further than that, that's what I love about Salesforce, well, maybe we're not even just measuring revenue, but we're actually measuring, we're measuring CSAT, we're measuring lifetime uh, value of a customer. Now we can really get in there and understand like, where should we double down on our marketing efforts?
1: Yeah. yeah, I, I like that. It's kind of the question of how do I optimize or how do I improve the process is, is always based on, well, what do I know about its effectiveness? And you have to have the data, like you really have to know, well, I, I, I wiggled this thing over here and I got this result over here. I need to be able to connect the dots on that before I can really make some decisions. I'm on right, where do I spend more? Where do I spend mass less, or where do I invest more and less on it?
0: Yeah, and I would I would also add to that. The other thing is, we'll run into a lot of organizations, and this is where I struggle. Is you know they'll say, "Well, I only have three salespeople." Okay, well, you know, you're spending five hundred thousand dollars a year on those three salespeople. How important is it for you to optimize their performance now? I think for a lot of companies we talk to, they're still not yet ready to really invest in making that process the best it can be because they're, they only have 3 salespeople. They don't have huge budgets for technology. But from my standpoint, if you're spending a half a million dollars on something, you probably, it probably makes sense to try to figure out how you can
1: get the most out of that. No, And I agree. I mean, it's, you know, a $500,000, you know, payroll for salespeople is not it's not a small amount. And, you know, spending 5 percent, 10 percent of that towards, you know, some kind of effort to to measure effectiveness seems seems like a, a pretty good investment of on results. Have you found any kind of companies or situations or, you know, industries, markets that just are not as particularly kind of good at this or, or it's difficult to do this kind of work in? every
0: industry has its own adoption curve. Now we obviously see in the world of technology, technology companies, they like technology, obviously, and they tend to adopt things really fast. I think where we've spent a lot of time, like I said, is working with companies that have extremely high-touch processes. My background is in finance. We still work with a lot of financial services companies, private equity investment, banking, wealth management, etc. We also do a lot of work in commercial real estate. And you do see a lot of companies doing some really interesting things in in this space. But at the same time, you see a lot of their competitors really not doing much of anything. And I think a lot of that is because the people running these organizations, the people that are responsible for bringing in... the majority of these relationships and revenue, a lot of them have been around for a long time, and they may still be operating with a process that was more relevant 30 years ago when they started their career, or maybe even 30 years before that when their first boss started his or her career. And it's been working. You know, when you have a really hardworking, motivated, intelligent, well-informed person that can get meetings, you're going to make money. That's not going to like stop working tomorrow. Yeah. But we see other organizations that say, yep, that's great. But our average person is able to produce twice what our competitor is because we've taken all the other stuff out of that person's way. That person is no longer spending an hour physically drafting a contract or a proposal that could be automated just because there's information in a system that needs to get into a PDF file somehow. Like, why would you have a person that's responsible for bringing in potentially
1: millions of dollars of business, spending their time on something like that. Yeah. And I think that's a a great way of looking at it, which is, it's not, it's not that it's broken. and It's not that it's going to work. It's that the person who implements the technically kind of enhanced version, they're going to be two times, three times, four times faster, and they're going to end up eating your lunch. So it's, it's more about how do you stay competitive and how do you, how do you move ahead in the game? Not just, well, that it, yes, your way works it just doesn't work as, as well as the next person who's going to do it better.
0: Well, and the other thing that yeah. we run into that's really challenging is a bit of a misalignment of incentives. One of the reasons that a lot of people don't want to adopt this process is because that end producer uh-huh. perspective, and they're saying, look, I have all this information in my head. I don't really want to share that with the organization. And if I decide to switch jobs, I'll take it with me. And that's obviously detrimental to the company. You have this person that has been with you for five or 10 years that has built up millions of dollars worth of knowledge. And the second they leave, they take that right out the door with them.
1: And so how do you how do you create the incentive, you know, for the the person to actually provide that or, or share that knowledge or enter that knowledge into the system? What's what's the how do you frame it for their benefit?
0: So it's challenging. I think it's a bit of a carrot and stick. The stick is obviously, to some extent, you have to say, look, like we pay you a lot of money to work here. Just as much as we expect you to you know, meet the requirements of your job and come into the office every day, if that's the kind of company you run, we expect you to use these systems. And I think you have to be very clear on what those expectations are. You can't go and say, look, every single time you get off the phone with somebody, I want you to enter these 35 data points before you pick up the phone and talk to the next person. That doesn't work, right? Mm-hmm. Say to say look we we expect you to enter these three basic data points on a big deal that you're working uh-huh. i think that that is more than acceptable for most people and the flip side of that on you know the the carrot side is not only are we looking to gather information so that you as an individual can be more effective? But also, how do you collaborate internally? Right. The average buying decision is made by, I think, five to seven different people in the business in terms of business buying decisions. As you move up in terms of the size of the investment, that number increases. And it increases inside the company as well. So now you're collaborating with three, four, five, six different individuals. Do you want to go into your email and pen out a five-paragraph email every time you want to explain the status of a deal to someone? one or do you want to simply point them to the system that's already housing that information yeah. and say hey quick update I just met with a client this is the new information save share send can we meet about this tomorrow and now we're going into a meeting not to share data points but to discuss strategy
1: yeah i like that idea that you know at the end of the day the the Kind of the argument is or the 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 benefit to the salesperson is they're going to get this hugely powerful tool to actually help them sell more sell better, sell faster, sell more profitably you know and the trade off is that you know they're going to have to enter the some of this information into this system, and, and yes, you know we can kind of manage the amount and we're not going to make it onerous, but you know that's a trade off and and you're, you're going to, net-net, you're going to make more money, you're going to be a better better salesperson by using the system and entering the information because it's going to give you that value back. I think that's a good way to, to approach it. Um, and we're going to hit time here. Eddie, if, if people want to find out more about you, about Union Square, I'm sure there's lots of, I always get questions about sales and sales process, sales automation, sales systems, Salesforce. If people want to find out more, how what's the best way to get a hold of you and, and find out more?
0: Website, unionsquareconsulting.com. I'm on LinkedIn, or they can send me an email, eddie at unionsquareconsulting.com.
1: That's eddie, E-D-D-I-E. And then I guess unionsquareconsulting.com. Straightforward. straight great. forward. All right. I will, and I will make sure that all that is in the show notes so people can click through. Eddie, this has been great. Thank you so much. Great conversation. I've, I've learned a, a fair amount. I love your integration of marketing and sales, You know, making that a much more fluid relationship. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I really appreciate the time and the conversation today.
0: Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it as well.